Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Are you a self-reliant leader? Hello, everyone. Kevin Cruz here. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about self-reliant leadership and a lot more. But first, congratulations on being the CEO of your future. Content people seek out entertainment. Ambitious people seek out education. Now, when it comes to ambition, to me, it just means you want to become more so you can make a greater impact. Do your friends and family members a favor. Let them know that the LeadX show is the smartest way to start your day. And free for you, don't forget to download our new ebook, Richard Branson's Seven Secrets to Leadership. You can get that at leadx.org forward slash Branson. And finally, big thanks to all of you who have subscribed on iTunes and left a one or two sentence review. It only takes a minute to do it, but it's the best way you can help us to build the LeadX tribe. Today's quick career tip, it's an unusual one, move to the BCC. What am I talking about now? The BCC line on an email is the blind carbon copy line. That's where you can put someone's email address in on that line and they'll get the email, but the primary person won't know that you've blind carbon copied them. Now, usually there's never really a good reason to use that BCC line. It's kind of sneaky, but a great time to use it is when a third party has made an introduction between you and someone else. Now, often that first person gets stuck on that email chain back and forth as you're starting to say hello to your new friend. The best thing to do as a professional is in that very first email, you would just say, hey, thanks for making the introduction. I've moved you to the BCC line so we don't flood your inbox. That's an advanced ninja networking tip. Move them to the BCC. Now, I'm excited for our guest today. He's been a friend for a while, a true leadership thought leader. He entered the U.S. Army at age 17 when he was five foot four inches tall and weighed only 114 pounds. But he thrived in the military and even spent six years in special forces as a medic and A-team executive officer and three years as a military intelligence officer. He now has over 25 years of business experience and with roles in business development, marketing, sales, training, product management, even as a CEO, he is now the founder of Self-Reliant Leadership and he co-hosts the Leadership Podcast. His book is The Littlest Green Beret on Self-Reliant Leadership. Our guest is Jan Rutherford. Jan, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin. Thank you very much. I, boy, that's quite an introduction. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. Oh, we are so glad to have you on. And we're going to talk about The Littlest Green Beret in just a minute. But as you know, I always start with the same first question. Will you share a time, uh, maybe early in your career, when you failed and what did you learn from it? Because the listeners all want to learn from your failure too. Yep. And my students, when, when I take them to Ireland, that's, this is always what they want to hear, the, <laughs> the failure stories versus the success stories. And you know, what's interesting about this question is, of all the things I have to choose from, which one do I pick? And I, I, I decided I'd pick the one that was the most devastating. Mm. And that was when in a nice way, my boss and I agreed to part ways. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a nice way to say it. And that hit me at about age 36. And it was really the first time in my life I had failed. And I was doing a great job. But what I failed to do 
was realize um, what one of my mentors had told me all along. And that was, he said, you've got to work with everybody. And at different points in my career before that, sometimes the people that reported to me were the most important. Sometimes my boss was, sometimes my peers were. And in this case, I didn't realize everybody was important. And I basically neglected my boss and focused on my peers and, and the people that reported to me and, and didn't manage up properly. Even though I was doing a great job, I didn't do a great job managing a relationship, managing expectations. And um, that's what I, I realized. And, and even now today, oftentimes people will realize that they're on, they have two teams. They're on a first team and a second team. The first team is the team with peers and who they report to. And the second team is the team that they have where people report to them. And the first team is the first team. You've got to take care of those folks, get resources, clear obstacles so that you can really be effective, but, but not a micromanager with the second team. So that was what I learned the very hard way. Wow. That's a great story. And you've, you've hit upon what has been one of my uh, biggest struggles, one of my biggest weaknesses. And when I, I can't even say when I was young and dumb because I was doing this, you know, into my thirties, I, you know, there's a difference between being a popular boss and a, you know, a, a good boss. And I was, I didn't realize I was taking the easy way out because I, the second team, I was making my first team. Mm -hmm. So for a few years, I was a, a leader in a company and I often didn't agree with the direction of leadership. I didn't agree with their decisions. I didn't agree with their strategy. A different department would have a cash flow problem and suddenly it was all of our cash flow problem. And so what I would often do is I would take the easy way out and I would tell my direct reports, hey, you know what? I disagree, but here's what we have to do. Or it's not our fault about this cash flow thing, but this is what we've got to do. Or who knows what they're thinking. It's very easy to be friendly and to be popular by blaming headquarters. Yeah. And it was a friend who told me, he said, Kevin, you know, you, you got to realize if you're collecting that paycheck to be a leader, you have to represent, you, you can fight in private or you, it's okay to disagree and all that in private. But then when we walk out, we're paid to lead. We're paid to, you know, don't be, you don't have to be inauthentic. You don't have to lie, but you've got to represent the interests uh, of the first team. And I, I, I wasn't fired over it, but it was a clear pivot one year in my company when I finally got that message. And it's just such an easy mistake to make, right? Right, right. Yeah. And um, the thing I learned was that I had to look at my boss as a client mm. and I kind of had to lower my expectations and say, you know, look, it's unrealistic that I think every leader I'm going to have is going to be all that in a bag of chips. It's just not realistic. And they're going to have flaws and, and things that are misaligned and, and maybe even values that we don't agree with. But, you know, in a way, we serve at the pleasure of the boss. And if, if you don't like it, either change it or, or move along. But it's not, it's not acceptable to sit around and complain. And, and that's really what I did. I, I complained to other peers. And, and I don't think I'm that great of an actor. I think I wear my emotions on my sleeves like most people do. Right. And, um, you know, if, if I were him, I would have had that same conversation, said this isn't working. Um, yeah. You know, we're – you know, I can't have somebody on the team that's, you know, not loyal and supportive and all that. And, and again, it was really the first time in my life I, I really felt like I had failed. 
And, you know, when I think about it to this day, it's still, you know, 20 years later, it still stings. But it's a lesson, right? So yep. I always say it's not win or fails, win or learn. And so uh, we've had painful learning lessons along the way. That's where the wisdom comes from, hopefully. Right, right. So, Jan, your book is The Little Screen Beret on self-reliant leadership. And <laughs> I have to start with the obvious question. You know, when people think special forces and stuff, they think of Rambo or these things. Yep. And you're saying you had such you were such slight of stuff stature what what attracted you to the military to begin with and then special forces yeah it, it, a good question and i am up to a whopping 135 pounds so <laughs> but, but but i haven't gained any height i'm still five foot four um well here's what's interesting i mean like most things in life it's not one thing um i wanted to play football and of course i was too little i got to play one year i weighed 60 pounds, but with pads, I weighed 65 and they let me play. And the next year I went to high school and you're not going to play high school football weighing 65 pounds. Right. You're just not. So I was a drummer and I threw myself into the band. And as I tell my kids, I was in the band when band was cool. <laughs> so I fell in love with music and I thought I was going to major in it. And I, I didn't get a scholarship to go to college. We were too poor for me to go. So I went to an army recruiter and said, I, you know, Hey, I want to try out for the band. So they put me on my first airplane ride and I flew from Miami to Atlanta, tried out for the band and on the way back had this epiphany that I, you know, I could keep doing music, but I wasn't going to make a living at it. I, I was playing and, you know, I was good, but not talented. And so when I got off the plane, I said to the recruiter, you know, I'm not going to do it. And he looked so frustrated. Mm. And I said, but I really liked flying on that airplane. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think I'd like to be a guy that jumps out of them and I, I love medicine and, you know, could I be the best trained medic in the army and jump right. out of planes? And he said, yeah, you need to go special forces. And I said, no, I don't want to be an MP. I don't want to be a military policeman. And he said, no, special forces is the green berets. And he showed me this brochure with, wow. you know, the big strap and Rambo guys. <laughs> and, um, you know, at, at that time I actually weighed 101. I had not gotten up to 114. This is amazing. <laughs> and I said, Sergeant Fleener, I can't do that. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, yes, you can. And I believed him. Wow. And, um, you know, the rest is, is history, as they say. But, you know, all those things led into it. I mean, if I had been normal stature, if I'd been able to play football, if I'd been a really talented musician, um, if we had had money, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, my life would have turned out different. Um, I'm really grateful the way it turned out because going through that, and, and having so many people tell me I would fail was the biggest confidence boost I could get at age 17 and exactly what I needed because I realized that adversity made you stronger and um, it gave you confidence and the confidence to, you know, hey, if, if I want to do something, I'll figure out a way I can be resourceful and resilient. That's what it taught me. That's what it gave me. It's an incredible story. And I, I really wonder, you know, what was the approach or the thinking of the recruiter? You know, was and the cynical side of me is like, OK, he must have <laughs> he's like a salesperson. He needs to hit his recruiting quotas and he knows how to do it. But you also have to think, like, look, they don't want to send anyone in that's going to wash out or is going to reflect poorly. Right. And he must have you must have shown him something to, to mm. have him push you like that, not just to, again, sign up, but. But to shove that Green Beret brochure in your hand. Yeah, that's a good I've never been asked that. That's a good question. Um, he, he did have a quota. They all had quotas back then. 
Um, but he was a great guy, Ser- Sergeant Kyle Fleener from hmm. Tennessee, who had actually been shot in the buttocks, just like Forrest Gump <laughs> in Vietnam. Um, I don't know. I think what he saw in me was, you know, as a little guy, I mean, you know, you're either going to get picked on or you're going to be scrappy. And I think what he saw was a certain amount of drive and determination and persistence and, and maybe a little bit that scrappiness. Um, but keep in mind, once I went to high school, I, ba- I didn't do any sports. Yeah. Um, I was, but back then it was football, baseball, basketball. And if you didn't do those, you just didn't do sports. So I hadn't done anything. So when Kyle Fleener said to me, I think you can do it, I, that's the first time I started really working out or doing anything since I was 13. Mm. I started running and, you know, I had to gain weight, of course, to, to, I mean, they wouldn't have let me in at 101 pounds. I had to weigh, I had to weigh at least 103 and get a waiver. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I was drinking Joe Weider weight gain and, and working out, but, but this is, I mean, he said all that before, you know, I, I was even, you know, an athlete again. Yeah. I, uh, Jan, you know, I, I never, I've never served at the world of respect for all, all who have and, and are, and I regret it. Uh, you, you know, hearing about your story about the experience and how, how it changed you and the confidence it gives you. I, I grew up, uh, well, I still am. I'm an introvert. I'm very shy. Uh, and I was just such a timid, also very slight, skinny kid. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is my father was a Marine, but mm-hmm. he regaled me with stories of Marine Corps boot camp, and he went through boot camp in the 1950s. When, when, did, you, uh, when did you enlist? Um, I, I went to the recruiter. That was the fall of 78. I was a senior in high school, and then I, I weighed 101. I had to get up to 103. I got up to 109, and... Um, I actually raised my right hand and joined January of my senior year, 79. Wow. And then the, the day I went on active duty, which was um, July, July 2nd, 1979, I was 114 pounds. That's amazing. And I was still 17, so my parents had a sign <laughs> for me. <laughs> and, and I know that uh, boot camp in any of the, the branches of the military today is no picnic, but these stories that my father would tell me from 1950s Marine Corps when the drill instructors were allowed to put their hands on you and stuff. It was, it just horrified. I mean, it's just scared the heck out of me. And so I was fascinated by the military and I think it would have been great for me, but it was actually, you know, he thought he was telling me these, these stories that would pump me up and, and, oh, it's this experience that you go through, but it, but it just scared the heck out of me. And so as a 18 year old, you know, I, I, I was far away from it. Well, let me tell you one, one other thing the the, in the military, there's a saying that I went through the last hard class. Says, well, here, I'm here to say I did not go through the last hard class. My my son is a West Point grad. He's a captain. He's serving. And I can tell you that the troops today are better than we were. They're stronger. They're faster. They're fitter. Um, the training is harder. The only thing I would um, give my son a, a rash of crap about <laughs> is our clothes um, our uniform, our boots were 10 times worse. They oh, were wow. horrible. <laughs> so when it was cold, it was cold. But but the training, I, I think it's harder, better. Um, I, I, I honestly don't know if my 114-pound self could have mm. gone through current-day Special Forces training. Yeah. That's a God's honest truth. That's amazing. Now, your your book and even your company, you know, it's called Self-Reliant Leadership. So how do you define self-reliant leadership? Tell us about it. Well, I, I, I think it's really about what Socrates said 
all those days ago is know <laughs> thyself. It's it, it, what I said repeatedly in the book is it's knowing which questions to ask and having the courage to answer them and act. And taking another step further, it's being self-reliant in order to be reliable. And it's what the best teams do. And what I often say is, you know, you think of the analogy of tree, T-R-E-E. You know, so when you look at people and you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a servant leader. Here are, here are all the things I'm going to do for you. Well, here's, here's what I think leaders need to say more often to their people is the T in tree, team. You need to put the team first. We before me are. You need to produce results. That's the, the results, the numbers, the behaviors. That's what performance is. You know, selection's an ongoing process. You have to earn your spot on the roster every day. E, empathy, that you have to be empathetic for my role, your peers' roles, all the people around you. You know, seek first to understand. And the final E is, are you making everyone's job easier or harder? And I think if we leaders and we teammates said to each other, hey, this expectation of each other is tree. I mean, that to me also is what self-reliant leadership is about. It's taking responsibility to be a good leader, to be a good follower, to be a good teammate. More than ever, I think we need great collaboration. We think we want all this autonomy and just work on our computer by ourselves and do our own thing. But you think about where we've gotten as a human species. We've gotten where we've gotten by working together. We're social animals. And we've forgotten that it's all about connectivity. But you have to be accountable to people. You have to be self-reliant to be reliable. I'm glad you uh, made that distinction because I wouldn't want anyone to think that what your message is, is, oh, you're, you're self-reliant. You don't need anybody else. Right. The emphasis is on tree. It is on team, but be self-reliant to be reliable, be, be accountable. I think that's a great message. Exactly. Thank you. Now, it's obviously a short format podcast, but I am uh, anxious for you to share your message. You do something very special. You organize a very special trip once or twice a year. Tell us about the crucible trips that you're organizing. Yep. And, and it actually ties into the question you just asked me about self-reliance. So I, I have this love for the wilderness and, of course, for leadership development. And having been in the Army, I knew that being cold, wet, tired, and hungry produces really remarkable things in people. It reveals character, good, bad, and ugly. And I thought, gosh, if I could combine those two things, wouldn't that be amazing? Well, when I started organizing um, my first wilderness expedition with executives, I was um, you know, getting all these calls from the special operations community because my book is dedicated to them. The proceeds go to them, and I've been helping them. And I thought, huh, what if I help guys that are transitioning come out in the field and spend time with executives – a place where the special operations guys are comfortable and I put executives out in the field where they're uncomfortable and they can help each other. So the executives are basically helping people getting out of the special operations community realize they have great leadership skills, team skills, problem solving skills, force multiplying skills. They just don't have the business language and that's okay. And then the executives learn things like selections and ongoing process. There's power in an after action review and debriefs. There's all kinds of um, different things like that, you know, that they learn. And so this is um, absolutely an, an amazing experience. And what comes out of it is positivity, the whole concept of slowing down to speed up, hearing the unheard. There's always some great lessons that come out of it, no matter because there's always a different combination of people and personalities and 
team and group dynamics. So uh, say again, so about how many people total go on the trip and what's the ratio of the executives to the um, vets? It's, it, ideally, it's 50-50. Um, um, it, it really all depends on sponsorship. We've mm-hmm. been really dependent on, on the sponsorship that we get. I mean, ideally, it's 50-50 and we pair the executive up with the special operations. And, and we've had expeditions in Moab and Patagonia. And we've got one coming up in northeast Oregon in the Wallawa Mountains and then next year, New Zealand. And, um, you know, they're just um, amazing. And for me, it's, it's kind of like, gosh, I wonder what's going to happen. And um, it, it helps me as a leadership development person stay relevant and to keep testing hypotheses. Like when we went to Patagonia, um, what does being liked, you know, have to do with leadership? Is that an important concept? And actually, you know, the executives found that the special operations guys were more about being liked and being collaborative and less about command and control, even than what we see in fortune 500 companies. Right, right. Now, this is a, this is a selfish question as a, um, very out of shape, a 50 year old guy. I mean, I'd be afraid I just wouldn't be able to keep up. Or do you have any of these executives who are just <laughs> like, I, I cannot climb this mountain or I cannot go another mile today. I mean, have you had those, those things come up? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, <laughs> the, the civilians, the, the executives always worry about that. And I always say it, you know, work out, of course, you want right. to be as fit as you can be. But here's the good thing. We just got back from Moab. We had four executives, two special operations guys, and then, you know, videographer and right. technical guides and all that. We had two guys that were particularly weak physically. And you know what? That made the team 10 times better. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> because if, if we had six macho guys, it would have been a, six macho guys competing and it would have just been a, a brutal a death march race. And because we had two guys that were weak, the team slowed down and the dynamic changed. And it was all about helping people and getting them through. It wasn't about competing. And then the guys that were weaker, the, the team really made sure that they were able to shine and be strong in other areas where they weren't physically strong. And what the team realized and appreciated was, hmm, we need diversity in all aspects not we don't need everybody exactly the same there's there's no power in that this is incredible i mean it does give it does give me hope if you say the uh the the two guys who are weak strengthen the team 10x then if i ever get out there with you i think i'll strengthen the team 100x <laughs> so <laughs> i'm going to remember i'm, I'm going to remind you when i when you're dragging my butt uh, up a mountain that you said i was going to make it yep. a lot better <laughs> oh i wouldn't be dra- trust me i wouldn't be dragging you the you know, and, and the other thing is I have had all different ages and body shapes and everything. And every time we go out and we'll say, you know, you get to choose to do this or not, you know, a particular right. activity. And people always do. They always do. And right. it's not from a peer pressure. It's, it's the team wants them to and they want them to succeed. And, and I've never had anyone not succeed or have to turn around or any of that because what happens is they start doing it for the team not just for themselves. And then what they wonder is, you know, gosh, if the team can get me to do these extraordinary things, what do I need to do when I get back to the office to create a team that can pull extraordinary performance out of people? And, you know, what, what we would say also is, you know, are the goals big enough in the business world? Because out there, the stakes are high. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to go and, 
you know, I mean, you get to a certain point out in the wilderness, um, you know, you, you have to go. Otherwise, someone's literally going to carry you. Right. How how do we equate that to the business world? Nobody wants to be carried, but we carry people all the time, literally and figuratively. And there's no consequences for that. They, they they don't feel like they're letting the team down. So to me, the onus is on the leader to create you know, that shared accountability. And that's one of the hardest things to do today is to create that true collaboration. Right. So before we wrap up, final question, I'm always asking our listeners to just get 1% better every single day, just a little bit better. So I want you to challenge us. What's one specific thing we can do today to become slightly better leaders? Well, I think, um, I'm reminded of the best boss I ever had who was actually on The Last Crucible and he's in his 60s and he did a phenomenal job. And he told me when I started working with him, Jan, it's easy to catch people doing things wrong. It's hard to catch people doing things right. Catch people doing things right. And recently I learned and I'm forgetting the the person's name about when you give great compliments to people to think of TSP as in teaspoon that it's got to be timely and truthful, it's got to be specific, and it's got to be personal. And I also know that the ratio of compliments to negatives for people to feel they've been treated fairly is three to one. Mm -hmm. And for marriage, it's five to one. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm an acronym junkie. I have such a, a, a bad memory. I try to turn everything into an acronym. So this is the first time, and I've taught on recognition, the first time I've heard TSP. I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, um, again, I don't want to take credit for something. I think it's Michael Alfonso. Um, he was an actor and um, I, I heard him in a seminar. He was in Steve Martin and Pink Panther. He, mm. he, that's, that's the movie he was in. Um, I think Alfonso. I'm not sure. I think that's great. Jan, thank you for coming on to the LeadX show. Tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, your book, how to support The Crucible. Yep. Well, everything you want to find about us and our work is at selfrelientleadership.com. And, um, you know, the other, another place you can go to see more about our work is we study leaders. And that's, that's sort of the, the handle where you'll find us as well. We study leaders and that's probably easier and shorter. But again, Kevin, it's, it's really a pleasure being on your show. I was honored to get the invitation, a great admirer of your work. You, I don't know how you, fit everything into the day. Um, you're just, you know, I mean, you're just the master of productivity and somebody I, I really, I really admire. So thank you for having me on today. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's mutual, my friend, you know that. All right. Uh, lead X nation. You've just been mentored by green beret leadership guru, Jan Rutherford. Don't forget. You can get the links he just mentioned and the notes from this interview over at leadx.org. And check out his uh, book on Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. And that's it for today's episode of the LeadX Show. Again, if you could take one minute to leave a quick rating and review on iTunes, it would mean the world to me. And until next time, remember, you know this by now, leadership is not a choice. You're a leader whether you want to be or not, because leadership is influence. You're influencing people with your words when you speak out. You're also influencing when you hold your tongue, when you act out, or when you choose to be a bystander. You are influencing either way. So be careful and lead with intent.